shift into an attitude of gratitude. Welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show, where we'll be discussing leadership, business, human potential, inspiring you to live rich from the inside out. Unlock your creativity, stretch out of your comfort zone, break through your barriers, take inspired action, and achieve epic results. Now here's your host, three-time best-selling author, speaker, and certified executive coach, Deborah Kozowski. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Millionaire Woman Show. I'm your host, Deborah Kozowski, and today I have a special guest for you. I'm going to introduce you to Howard Brown, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, two-time stage four cancer survivor, international bridge builder and coach that shares the keys to leading a resilient life that drives successful community leaders, business innovators, and patients, advocates, and more. And I am so excited that I just want to read a testimonial for his book, Shining Brightly. Shining Brightly is a testimony to storytelling as the most effective way to teach and learn. Howard Brown shares a triumphant story of overcoming challenges and creating a better world. And that is said by Stephen Spinelli Jr., president of Babson College. Please welcome to the show, Howard Brown. Hi, Deborah. How are you? Excited to be here. And thank you for that gracious introduction. I'm just Howard. <laughs> no, it's never just you are Howard and you are shining brightly on the Millionaire Woman Show. So I'm really excited. And I want to congratulate you on writing this memoir. And I would love for you to tell our audience how you went about researching it um, through your Zoom interviews and what you hope to achieve by sharing this story. Because it's all, everyone has a story. And I think it's so illuminating and powerful when people are able to share that story. Glad to do so. So I am the least likely published author. Let's just put it out there. I'm a decent speaker, good speaker, great speaker, but I'm not a good writer. You got to know your strengths out there. So when David Crumb, my editor and book publisher, uh, called me for coffee, he was calling to say goodbye to me. I had stage four metastatic uh, colon cancer and uh, he, he didn't know when he was going to see me again. And uh, he basically uh, said, do you want to write a legacy book and leave a short book for your wife and daughter and family? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I'm daunted by the fact of writing uh, anything. And uh, I came out of the bathroom. And after our hour talk, he had 10 chapter suggestions written on a napkin. The old write it on the napkin, right? Like Silicon Valley style, like I'm used to. <laughs> and he said, go home, tell Lisa. Well, I already knew what her reaction was going to be. My wife, Lisa, I said, David wants uh, me to write a book um, to leave as a legacy. And she said, I don't mean to laugh in your face, but oh my God, how are you going to do that? So I slept on it for a few days. I called mm -hmm. David back and I said, David, I have one request. Um, and he said, only one? Most uh, potential authors have you know, dozens. I said, one. I said, if you'll allow me the uh, ability to invite the most influential, important people of my life, okay, onto Zoom and allow both of us to interview them, I'll write a book with you. Great big pause. On the line. He's like, um, we've never done that. I need to call you back. So he called me back and he said, we're going to do it. And he thought it was going to take a year. It took three. And we interviewed 158 people. And those wow. Zoom recordings became transcripts. Those transcripts became drafts. The drafts became chapters. And voila, 
I actually had a manuscript. You need one of those. Now, I will tell you this, and you might, might hear me repeat this phrase, but getting a book together is a team sport. There are 901 steps. And here's my book in front of me now. And I'm so excited for it. And it came out September 27th. And this is my life's journey, leading a resilient life with purpose and hope and to inspire others. So if you ask me what I want the book to do, I want people to shine their light. As the cover shows, it's my energy going into a dove for peace, love, and hope and illuminating that in the world and become your better self, help others become their better self. And, and then, as I said, shining brightly a, a little bit each day, it does make the world a better place. Yeah. And one of the things is the theme of light is central to your story. Why is light so prominent? Well, if you think about what the opposite of light is, it's darkness. And darkness, we typically think of gloom and alone and depends up uh, we're coming right out of the, the pandemic so it could be depression restrictive and so um we we light is the is that fuel and with combined with hope is the fuel that things will be better and that we can make things better for ourselves if we don't like where we're at right now and so light is becomes very very important um to embrace it embody it use it for that energy uh, as you go about your day. You know what I find fascinating? You know, we hear about the stories of light in darkness. You know, if we light a candle, of course we're lighting, but if we can reach out and light someone else up, it's not that our own light goes out, that we just continue to illuminate more light and bring more people together. And I think when you interview 150 people, not only have you even made their light brighter, they're going to go out and be beacons of light as champions for you as well. And they lit my light up too. Um, that was, it was cathartic after coming out of a stage four cancer diagnosis um, to tell stories and the lessons that people shared. The book's different. Most books, the author is actually teaching, preaching, talking to the reader. I am not. I am talking to the people in the Zoom room, conducting conversations and becoming a maestro. Um, we're laughing, we're crying. We can't remember because it was 35 years ago. Um, so that <laughs> people are telling me that the stories are reading quickly. It's a page turner. And um, that I give homework at the end of every chapter. There's calls to action. You can't just read a chapter. You can think about it all you want. But if you're not using it as a call to action, my, my daughter always says, Emily, she says, Positivity is great. Positivity without action is just positivity. Go take action. Right. And so that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so it's a very different book. I haven't had a chance to read this one yet. So my, my question for you is when you talk about stories that have happened many, many years ago, have you noticed a theme throughout your life, like that golden thread that there has been resilience and there has been stories of strength all along? Oh, wow. That's Deborah, that, that's, that's really powerful because I start off at the beginning. My grand grandmother, Bertha Budish came from Lithuania, maybe Poland, maybe the Ukraine lived in a dirt hut and got to this country. And her journey is, 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 a, is an episode and a book amongst itself. And I highlight it, the lesson she learned. And then she taught us as little kids, this is an Orthodox Jewish woman that in the first story, and I don't want to blow up for someone, but I found a quarter and I was not allowed to keep that quarter. That quarter was going to someone else in need. And mm -hmm. that is um, the, 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 the Jewish act of tzedakah, or we call it justice of giving. She taught us something called chesed, which is living a life of kindness. 
and also Tikkun Olam, which is repairing a broken world and broken self. And so those lessons were drilled into me and adopted by uh, me as a little kid and my twin sister. And we carry those forth with us. Right. And it's easy to get busy with the busy stuff of life and, and other things, but that's my core. And, and that's, that's what I try to do each day a little bit if I can. And, and, and that makes me whole. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I always like to gain insight into a person's life and, you know, whether it be a memoir, whether it be a book that they've built foundationally on the principles that they teach, there's always something that's so unique about their story. And your book touches on four lighted related truths throughout the book. Can you tell us what those four truths are? So, you know, the, the, the truths are that we all are, are born as individuals. Uh, we're not born taught to hate. We learn that, but we have our own special light. That's the first thing. Everyone actually is unique and different and has their own special light that they can bring forth every single day. And it can change and it can be more intense or a little dim, but you, you have that light within you. The, the second thing is that when we shine, okay, we share our light with others. And, and that's really important. And others share that light back. And so part of my kind of survivorship after I've been knocked down is that resiliency, is that light help rebuild me. The light of others, my cheerleaders, my, my, my posse, uh, my troops, uh, the prayers, the memes, the books, the jokes, I took it all in and it helped me get back on top again. And so that's, that's the other one. And then the last thing, and I use this term force multiplier, if we can actually come together, okay, and combine our light for goodness and purpose, oh my goodness, the world is going to be in such a better place. And we can celebrate each other's diversity and unique givings and, and, and help one another and lift each other up. And, and boy, is that beautiful. That's amazing. Like when you think about force multiplier, like if everybody knew how much of a life force that they were and how collectively we make such a difference, Man, you're right. We will transform the world. I want to tell you something. There's a funny story in the book. You asked about what we, uh, you know, 30 years ago, sometimes, you know, even like longer. We we got in a fight, my family, about whose brisket, Bubby's brisket was better, the grandma's brisket <laughs> recipe. And we couldn't remember it exactly. So we agreed okay. to disagree. But um, there, the story of family tradition makes people go back and think about their own families. You can think about the laughs, the cries, the arguments, because we're families, right? We're imperfect. And um, so those stories are meant for people to share and think about their own family traditions and appreciate them, remember them, rekindle them. And so but there's lessons in the book and they're subtle. They're not forced on you. And um, I think it, people will really get a kick out of it <laughs> to think about that. Well, I think... That's what connects us all is having these traditions and learning another person's tradition and maybe incorporating some of those traditions into our own. You know, I, I think mean? about one main tradition for me is 12 meatless dishes at Christmas because I have a Ukrainian background. Ah. Right. And I love to hear about others because it's like, oh, so what do you do? You know, and I think it's fascinating to understand and appreciate. And I, and I think that's where that light shining brightly is is where we need to seek to understand, as Stephen Covey said, not, not just when we're looking for solutions to problems, but also to seek to understand, to learn about each other. 
Yeah, I, thanks for sharing that. Um, he's right, and you're right. And also, by the way, we, we need to share some light for the Ukrainian uh, people and the people displaced right now. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard in the heart uh, for everyone. I want to share, so uh, one other story is that um, one of the things that, you know, you can share within your family, you're, you, you should be familiar with your family, but are you familiar with other people that don't look, act, or have cultures like me? Mm. And so I pride myself in the, um, the melting pot here in Michigan of um, Arab Muslims, of Chaldean Christians, of, of Lebanese, Albanian, of uh, Hindu, of African-American, Christian, other uh, cultures. And there's so much to learn from each other from the other and that mm -hmm. welcoming in the other and learning and growing together. Um, we're really all people here and for a very short time. And I find that gives you a, just such a broad and really uh, captured life. It's, it makes things so much more interesting when you actually are open to welcoming in the other. And we're facing a lot of resistance. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of, uh, um, unfortunately, uh, we call it anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, white supremacy. There's a lot of issues in the world, but I find that to be such a joy. And um, it makes things pretty cool to, to learn about things and, and why other people, their customs, traditions, and their foods it's cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm a foodie. So I'm all about learning about their food. And then you start to learn that you really are a lot more similar than you are different, Absolutely. right? About your hopes and dreams and goals and wanting your kids to go to school and lead a better life and all these different things that people work so hard for. Well, when you go out into the world, and my daughter just graduated uh, uh, University of Michigan, and she's out in the world in the West by yourself meeting new people as a TV reporter. And your job is to go learn about the community and report on that community and give people a snippet into that community. Now there's a lot of, you know, you get the gun shootings and then and the, and the bad stuff, but her, her she's a community reporter on the on a lot of the good stuff that's happening in the community that people need to be aware about. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting on, on, on the journey that you choose and the choices that we make. Yeah, that's fascinating. Congratulations on her new career. That's going to be exciting for her. Yeah. So in 1998, you're 23, you're a young professional, just starting your career, and suddenly life threw you this major cur curveball. I want you to take us back to that time. You're sitting in a chair or standing. I'm not sure what you were doing at the time, but tell us when you first get your cancer diagnosis, stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, less than, and told that you have less than six months to live. How did you respond and how did that impact your life? I, I can't imagine. Just take us back to that moment. Well, take a deep belly breath and just understand that um, my life came to a crashing halt at 23. And it wasn't 98. It was 1989. Oh, 89. Um, sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Don't worry. We're just getting through this. Uh, I'm, I'm off driving to Dayton, Ohio to start a, a new position. I find a little spot on my left cheekbone. I get out to get gas. I find a payphone, and I call my mom and dad and say, I have a little bump on my cheek, probably nothing. I continue on the next day to Dayton, Ohio. I start my work. My mom comes out to help me get my apartment uh, you know, furnished and decorated. I didn't have sheets or plates, uh, you know what moms do. And she's like, that thing, that little thing's you know, concerning. We should get it checked out. I said, mom, it's okay. I'm good. I'm really busy with getting started at work. I got big travel plans. Um, I think it'll be fine. Well, 
I just two weeks later happened to be going back to Boston, my hometown, and speaking. And I flew in early that weekend to stay with my parents to, you know, catch up. And I wasn't gone that long. My dad played a trick on me. Instead of going to play tennis, he took me to the community hospital. And they said, yeah, it's, it's a cyst. Don't worry about it. Take some antibiotic. You'll be fine. Well, I spoke on Monday at the American Bankers Association on disaster recovery plans, and I wasn't feeling good. So I was home at four o'clock, going to have dinner before flying, taking a late night flight out. And my dad took me back to the community hospital and they took a piece of the um, of this, of this so-called cyst. It was getting bigger. My glasses weren't fitting on my face. I wore glasses at the time. And we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. And this is no internet, no cell phones, and a little bit of computer use in 89, just starting. And so I went on my business. I flew to Florida. I flew to New York. And I was called back to Boston. I went to the same community hospital. And this time, I had seven doctors and nurses greeting me. And they said, Howard, and my mom and dad were with me. You are have a two o'clock appointment with Dana Farber Cancer Institute. And I was like, what? What, what are they talking about? What, where we're going? Why? Why are we going there? We went, and after a battery of tests, um, I uh, you're sitting in the waiting room a long time. And at this major worldwide cancer research hospital, world renowned, they have the Jimmy Fund, which is kids. So in the waiting room for me at 23 was a bunch of old people. I walked over to the waiting room with the kids who are playing because I still didn't realize why I was there. Get called into um, this big mahogany desk of this doctor uh, who invented chemotherapy for lymphomas. And behind him is this Harvard fellow, Dr. Eric Rubin. He's closer to my age. My parents are back in my peripheral to my left. And Dr. Knauss says, Howard, you're a young man. You have a very serious um, disease, stage four, T-cell, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a blood cancer of your lymphatic system. And I didn't hear another word. I look back, my mom's bawling, my dad's a statue. And I look up to Eric Rubin, I go, what is he saying? Because I heard blah, 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 blah. I didn't hear anything after that. So I think to answer your question in a long way, I was a deer in the headlights. I had no idea what was happening and what was about to happen. And we talked a little longer. We went home 40 minutes uh, back to um, our house. We invited my twin sister over for dinner and we cried a lot and we didn't know what we didn't know. So my dad went to the library and got a book on cancer. You couldn't search the internet. There was no internet. Right. We didn't know a lot. And um, basically some more testing. And a few days later, I was supposed to start chemotherapy, but I didn't. And we, we can talk about that. But I just want everyone to take in a moment and think about in a moment's time at 23 and a half years old, my life came to a screeching halt. And I had a range of emotions from deniability to scared to darkness to anger, which you have every right to do. And physically, I felt really strong. And we're living basically in, in landlines. So getting the word out is much more difficult if you even want to share that with people. Right. And you know, what's interesting, sometimes I'll, I'll hear that, you know, people have this prayer hotline or um, they get on, put on a prayer list. And it's so interesting because I hear mixed things about wanting to share a diagnosis, 
Cause it's like, oh, am I going to be part of the gossip circle or, you know, and then other people will be like, no, I need all the prayers I can get. So I can imagine, you know, for some people, you know, listening to your story or whatever they're going through as well are in that place of how much do I want to share? And did you find that challenging or did that kind of take over with mom and dad? So I, I'm fairly open about it because I didn't know a lot and I was in the, in this major fire hose of learning. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know. Um, I, I want to get back to why I didn't do chemotherapy the first time because yeah, it's really please. important, but, but, but um, I want to move forward for one second. I, I did chemotherapy and then I went to my high school reunion bald and uh, maybe you know, about two months or a month and a half later. And I'm 23. I'm at my fifth year high school reunion. And I heard the whispers, guys are brutal. Dead man walking, poor bastard. You know, he's not going to make it because you hear the C word and you thought of death. Yeah. You thought of death. And, um, but I had to rally some of the troops, right? And my friends cared, but I was immune compromised. So, so seeing people was very difficult. My mom had everyone wearing gloves and masks in the house. And, mm. um, you know, this chemotherapy, what, which wasn't working, um, immune compromised. So I was very susceptible. I want to take a step back because I showed up at the hospital after not sleeping. I'm going to do chemotherapy. I didn't know what an infusion was. And I get there and, 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 and Dr. Rubin meets me after a battery of tests and says, we're not doing chemo today. I said, what? You told me that I'm really aggressive stage four um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, we better do something quick, right? Um, you know, or else I could die. And he said, well, your liver function is too high. It's unsafe. But we're going on a field trip. Now, why he had this vision of me going on a field trip is either good doctoring or it was God sent. I don't care. He says, you're going on a field trip to the cryopreservation center. And I said, cryo what? What's that? He goes, you're going to go leave a sample. I said, you told me I'm not going to make it. Why am I going? He goes, what else are you going to do today? He goes, you'll go release some stress. <laughs> I was like, Okay. So I went and did it and I forgot about it really because I had much more pressing matters at the time. Right. And I was failing and relapsing and failing and I didn't get any good news until probably the end of February of 1990 where my twin sister, CJ Brown Jingris, was an exact HLA match uh, for a, a bone marrow transplant or now called a stem cell transplant. And that's a one in 24, 25,000 chance. That's a lottery ticket that she was a match. And um, ultimately, we'll skip to the end, is that she saved my life. I, I did massive amounts of chemotherapy, massive amounts of pill, full body radiation, uh, lots of side effects. And I was in isolation for like 32 days and that bone marrow grew in me and it could have killed me right away or it could have saved me. And it became my immune system and it defeated the malignancy. And my twin sister, miracle number one, saved my life. Wow, that's an amazing Amazing story. Cause I do know the, that the odds are on the slimmer side. Um, so after your first bout of cancer, you decided to move to Southern California. You're going to have a fresh start. Tell us about how that change um, reinforced your, like changed or reinforced the life trajectory. So I call that, that transition in my story is rebuilding Humpty Dumpty, the old nursery rhyme version 1.0. I went out to California, 135 pounds in bald. I needed a survivorship plan. I needed to be able to rebuild my emotional well-being, my mental toughness, my confidence, my physical well-being. 
and I had to do that on the basketball court, my happy place, which is great for you anyways. But um, I started to, to rebuild. My career was coming back together. Uh, I got involved in, in the Jewish community and I met my wife there. Good things were happening. Cancer was starting to never be forgotten, but be put in the rear view. Right. I was getting back and not a patient. I was Howard Brown, you know, living my life and it was beautiful and I was grateful and blessed and lucky. Yeah. That's amazing. So making the shift, deciding to just rebuild. And I know that you also, you know, on this journey, building your career, and now you're in the Silicon Valley in the 90s. Can you uh, tell us more about the dot-com years like were like for you as an aspiring entrepreneur? Now you've got this rejuvenated life, you're moving forward. And um, how did this new lifestyle impact your marriage, your health, your well-being? Well, I, I was excited because I, I had uh, left a big company and I'd only done a startup. I had success in the lawn literature video editing world in the broadcast space. It was a blast. And I got recruited to be a number 13 person at a startup. It was in the music industry. And what I did for video, we were going to do for audio. And that pace was very fast. And uh, old habits are hard to break. And unfortunately, my old habit is being a workaholic, not having a good work-life balance. And you fall into those traps even after what I learned, even after the second chance I got. And um, my wife and I were talking about having a family. And uh, you know, we were married and uh, for about seven years. And she's like, you know, maybe we should call for the, the sperm. And try to have because I was, I, you know, the amount of chemotherapy and radiation, um, you know, yeah. made me sterile. And so we called for the sperm and we made eggs and we did in vitro fertilization. And it was the most beautiful thing ever. A healthy baby girl. We call her our miracle girl. Our frozen kidsicle. Emily was born <laughs> um, 11 years later after frozen sperm. I mean, medical technology wow. saved my life. Medical yeah. technology gave me a second miracle. My daughter. I mean, it was. I don't know how incredible that is. It's just amazing. And it's just such a blessing in our lives and, and the ability to actually have a, my own child and, and have our own child and, and watch her grow and raise her with values and see her through her ups and downs and her soccer career and her uh, academics and all that. It was <laughs> incredible. And that's so much light in the darkness that you experienced. That's the light, right? There you go. There's the yeah. major light. Um, I, I can only, I mean, Silicon Valley is a whole nother podcast, but I can tell you it moves fast. Um, it was exhilarating, frustrating. Um, we're sprinting uh, until you're out of breath. Um, you're working 18 hours. Um, you know, these campuses now, now COVID's changed it all, but the campuses like Google, Apple, Facebook, they want you to live there. They'll do your dry cleaning. You can eat there 24 hours. They have a gym, they have showers. <laughs> you don't ever have to leave. Why even pay rent, right? Now right. that's changed now because people are working out of their homes. But even when you're working out of your homes, you can still work 20 hours a day. You, when do you shut it down? That's a discipline that we need to learn. And I'm still frustrated uh, at it with myself because it's you just look at your phone and you're back in business. So we all have to learn that balance a lot better. Yeah. And, you know, you're a proud alumni. We talked about Stephen Spinelli Jr. You're a proud alumni of Babson College in Wesley, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. And you talk vividly about Babson Babson, uh, throughout your book, what makes it so special to you? What and the lessons that are so unique? Okay, so if anyone does any research on Roger Babson, 
okay, who started the Babson Institute in 1919. He was a Renaissance man for that time. Um, so he, he started the Institute. He made every student sign a pledge that they will actually get a um, an elite business education, but in service to humanity. Um, he wrote little um, affirmations and handed them out on postcards. He predicted the fall of Wall Street and the Great Depression. And wow. people thought he was bizarre. He was a fan of uh, Isaac Newton. And um, we have a spinning globe, the world's largest spinning globe that spins right when you pull onto campus that they refurnished. And it's an amazing place for entrepreneurship and creative thought in action. It's, um, it changed the trajectory of my entire life. I was headed to uh, uh, and went to a liberal arts college. I didn't like it. I didn't do well there. I took Babson summer classes and this grad school dean believed in me and did, saw in me the ability to be an entrepreneur and I transferred to Babson College. And Babson College has set me on the course of being a technology entrepreneur and a community servant. And that foundation, like the lessons I learned from my family and my great grandmother and grandparents and my parents, yeah. it led me to the, a, a great, great trajectory um, in innovation and bringing new things into this world. And it's, it's still exciting even today. And, and it models like the person you show up as. So, you know, everything that we consume or we're part of makes us part of who we are. So it's beautiful to hear about the community servant and seeing these other parts of you along your journey. Yeah. So 26 years later, 2016, you get struck down by cancer again. This time, stage three colon cancer became a stage four metastatic cancer in 2017, very slim chances of survival. In what ways has your response or outlook different the second time around? Because, you know, you, when you face it once in disbelief, I can't imagine when you hear all of this coming out a second time, I could see, you know, what did they just say? <laughs> um, I Go tell us what that was like for you. There's still disbelief. <laughs> um, so I'm an athlete. I'm in good shape. Um, no real symptoms. Um, I wake up. I look at the gastroenterologist. My wife has my hand and he's, I said, everything okay? And everything's good, right? And he's like, no, I found something. And when I find something, it's usually bad news. And it was bad news. It was stage three colon cancer. 10 days later, I had 13 inches of my colon removed. Um, I got a chemo port installed in about uh, a month later, I started uh, Rock'em Sock'em chemotherapy. Lightning struck twice? How could this be, right? Yeah. But I was different. I'm in a different stage. I'm 50 years old. I'm a, a husband and dad. And it was different wow. uh, this time around because I was a war veteran. I knew what being on the line of fire was. So this time, um, obviously, I let myself you know, uh, have some darkness, very little, but I was a Marine on a mission. I knew I had to live. My daughter was just starting high school and I wanted to see her graduate high school. That was the goal. Make it, make it, make it, make her graduate high school. And um, things weren't good. I was failing surgeries, failing chemotherapies, failing clinical trials, stacking up even more um, side effects. And, um, but I was active when I could be. I was the soccer team manager. Um, I ended up uh, shutting my companies down because I had to choose between focusing on living. Uh, and I didn't want the extra stress of, of running my businesses. Plus I was sick all the time. Right. So I ended up uh, learning a lot more lessons is that I took that resilience and that mental toughness 
and I applied it. Now, we're living in 2016, okay? It's digital. There's Facebook. I can share my story, and I decided very, um, very focused to be able to share my story, and I have a very large network, and take in the cheerleading, the, the, the prayers, and, and, and people uh, wanting to see me go through it. Now, I didn't share the gory details. Everyone's yeah. got their own lives to live. It's gory, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, being uh, on all these meds and all the, all the side effects, it's not fun. But again, no one needs to know all that stuff. But, you right. know, I shared that, uh, you know, I'm fighting a good fight and some days I couldn't get out of bed. And some days I, I could, and, and my friends dragged me to the gym or they dragged me to the basketball court and I wasn't very good, <laughs> but they still got me out there. They wanted me to feel inclusive and that helps. Right. People drop by meals and supplies and protein shakes because I needed to gain weight. and. Um, that all the little goodness, gift cards, it was beautiful. Um, I, people rallied around me. And, and the lesson I learned was I needed to learn how to accept help. Mm. Guys were terrible at it. But in general, we want to be the providers and the macho guys. I learned how to accept help. And, and boy, it was worth it. People came to me and my family in my time of need, yeah. which was beautiful. You know, and, and I think it's really interesting when I think about even people with chronic illness, you know, we do need to accept that help and that allowing and realizing that that's where we're allowing the other people to be the community servant in reciprocating. So it's very powerful lesson that you teach Howard about that allowing, because I don't think we allow as much as we need to. And that goes back to that prayer line that I was talking to you about, um, for the concern that people will gossip and they may, but they also might be talking good gossip about saying, what, what are the things that we can rally? What are the things that we can do to support him? So facing death twice. And I know you talked about, you know, some of your reasons why I should live. And, and you said, because I have so much more to give, tell us why you felt this core belief in your life. So by accepting help, people were giving to me, allowing them to do great deeds and share their light with me that helped uplift me. So I said, this is, this is really the meaning of a good life is to not what we get, but what you give. And mm -hmm. now I try to do that every single day. I'm in Humpty Dumpty version 2.0 rebuild and I'm doing yes. great published author, international award claim speaker, right. uh, survivorship coach. I'm doing it. I'm living it. And I got, I got a, a basically, I always say a second chance. I got a third chance. So, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And so that's the point is it's not what you can get. It's what you can give. That's the right. huge lesson. Yeah. And you can give people the gift of allowing. <laughs> so that's very powerful. Um, I want to just dive in. You talk about, you say in your book that there's caregivers who are superheroes. And we were talking about superheroes earlier, because I believe that when you have superheroes in your life, not only does your life shift for the better, but you also can look at these people and see the qualities in them that you want to have as you recover, as you grow as a person. And if for you, the caregivers are superheroes and the cancer affects the whole family and your primary caregivers, first your mother, then your wife. Um, can you describe in raw and candid ways, the ways of caring for a gravely loved one and tell us how cancer has impacted your family? What's it like for your caregivers, what are those lessons? So caregivers, my infusion nurses, listen, doctors too, but most, most of the superheroes in my life are women. It's incredible. First of all, probably a lot smarter than us, 
but selfless. My mom, my dad too, yeah. but my mom gave up everything to be at her child's beck and call. I moved home with mom and dad at age 23, all right? And her calling became getting me back to wellness. Gave up everything, maybe except eating M&Ms. Uh, she gave away everything. <laughs> and she, my, my, my mom is a force of nature. When she went to the cancer hospital and found there was no candy for everyone, she called 10 candy manufacturers. They never were without candy ever again. She's a woman of action. And when her son needed, needed her most, she, she was there and gave up her entire life until I was nurtured back to health. And, and when I left for California, I actually kind of needed to regain myself. Uh, the, the, she was great, but a little bit smothering at age 24 now. So I needed <laughs> to go spread my wings again. The, the birdie had to leave the nest again. Um, transitioning to my wife, my wife had it harder. She's raising a daughter, right? She's taking over all the finances. She's taking over all the responsibility, keeping track of the right. hospital bills, the paperwork, trying to keep a household going and gave up everything, okay, to nurse me back to health again. And so that's why they're superheroes because it takes a superpower. They don't sleep. They have all the worry, okay? They're watching you go through all this and they have to take action and, and keep life moving and keep us going. And so that's heroic. It's just, that's the word for it. It is absolutely heroic. And when my uh, infusion nurses are putting, you know, chemotherapy, the poison that's going to cure me for six hours sitting in a chemo chair, that's right. heroic and trying to make you feel comfortable at the same time. And so, boy, if I didn't have these women in my life, I, I don't know where I'd be. Yeah. And, you know, and the first thing that came to my mind as you were describing that scenario is that they were you know, keeping things going around you. It's almost like they're lighting the path in your darkness to say, just follow me. The, just follow this light. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm taking care of everything around you. All you have to do is just stay with me. Just keep going. Yeah, so, think about this in the digital world, though. You're getting text messages, emails, yeah. phone calls. Everyone wants to know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Hard, hard. But uh, she did it. And, uh, you know, Amen. That's yeah, yeah. No, it's a very powerful story. Um, and life changes after you survive an advanced cancer. It's traumatic. Um, did your priorities change or how did you find new meaning moving forward? Well, yes, I, I basically advocate for early screening of, of, uh, of all cancers. So whether it's your mammogram, your prostate, uh, you're getting uh, your home test for a colonoscopy or getting the colonoscopy itself, getting your cardiac tested uh, for a stress test. All that stuff slipped during COVID. Go get screened. I am a national advocate for screening uh, because I can tell you this, if I would have been screened at 40 or 42, Deborah, we probably wouldn't have met. I wouldn't be on your podcast. I wouldn't have a published book. Um, I would just continue on with my life and I would have done good deeds, but this yeah. amplifies it now to, to a major level. I am now reaching audiences across the world and I am sharing my story, but it's a cautionary story health, balance, go, go, go get checked out, <laughs> take yeah. care of yourself or else you can't go take care of others and shine your light. Thank you so much for having the courage to share your story because it, it does touch on vulnerability and it takes a lot of courage for people to share their stories and allow the help. So it, it is very meaningful. Um, you conclude the book with sharing hope as a call to action to make the world a better place. Why is hope so essential? 
So part of that was gratitude and giving thanks to the people that did extraordinary things in my time of need. But the second thing was actually, it's a life lesson. Hope is that fuel, is that light that allows us to, to step forward. If you don't have hope, you have darkness. If you don't have hope, you can have sadness. Uh, hope is that. So I wanted to make hope a currency of sharing. So we can share a hug, we can share love, and now we can share hope. And we share that hope that brightens people's day. It gives the art of possibilities. And that's, that's, that's what we need to get out of bed. That's what we need to conquer big mountains. That's what we need each day. I'm, I'm so grateful that we had an opportunity to meet and that you came on the show. Um, this is a very powerful story for people to shine their light brightly, no matter in the darkness that they, they walk through. And it's lighting the world for other people as well to establish that hope, whether it be, you know, a life-changing diagnosis, a chronic illness, what, whatever it is that throw the curveballs of life, what it throws you. Um, thank you so much, Howard. I have a couple more questions before we just tail, tail off the interview okay. is that when people come on the show, I, I like to ask them, other than the book you wrote, what is one book that has changed your life? Wow. There's so many choices there, but I'm going to tell you one that comes right to mind. It popped to the top of the list. So um, I read a book called Bounce. This book by Bounce is um, it's by Robert. Oh my God, I'm blanking. I got to look up back in my book. Um, Robert Wicks, Professor Robert Wicks. He's written about 25 books. But bounce is how to get back up again. We all get knocked down in life. It's all about building the resilience back. And that book, I, I read like three books. <laughs> I have a hundred, but I read like three books during uh, you know cancer two here. That book last an indelible imprint on me of how to use resilience to overcome and to inspire and to motivate and to educate. And that's the book. Power oh, it's by Robert, Robert J. Wicks. Robert J. Wicks. We'll make sure we have that in the show notes along with yours as well. You. And my final question, like I, I like to ask all my guests, and this will be very powerful in the light of your memoir, Shining Brightly. What does it mean to you to live rich from the inside out? So that, 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 that you just described to live rich from the inside out is, 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 is the core of my book. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's basically allows you to um, live a wholesome life. Um, listen, life is tough. You're going to have chinks in the armor, but if you stand to your core of uh, that, uh, that goodness in you that you, we all have in us. Okay. It's born. It's, it's, it's born with us. And we can take that and share that out. That's the purpose of life. And, and, and that, that describes my book. It describes me. And I hope that, and I'm going to put my glasses on right now, because we're going to shine brightly with a million <laughs> women right it. now to go make this world a better place and to go illuminate your light uh, for, for goodness and positive chain and join the force multiplier. And uh, please do that with me. And uh, hand in hand, we, we, will, we will make great progress. I love it. I love it. I need those shades there, Howard. So I would love for you to share with our audience how they can grab your book, how they can stay in touch with you or hire you to come speak to their organizations. And 
just continuing the message and getting more people to shine brightly. I'm honored and, and, and privileged to do that. Um, so the best way is easy. Shiningbrightly.com is, is the way. Um, I'm very interactive. Uh, people can download um, survivorship uh, study guides and discussion guides, mentorship is leadership study guide, interfaith and, and why meet the other study guides. I have a little coloring book to, to make a, a sadaka box, which is like a, a piggy bank for to hand to the goodness and a charity. Um, so lots of interaction. Uh, so find me there. Well, uh, you can talk about, uh, you know, booking me as a podcast guest, uh, talk about speaking gigs. And um, also, if you know anyone that needs survivorship coaching, a lot of people need to be able to help with those first few steps to get back to uh, uh, positivity in their life. I'd be glad to talk to them as well. So hit me up at shiningbrightly.com. You can certainly buy the book uh, in its Kindle hard copy and paperback form um, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anywhere you buy books. Thank you so much, Howard, for helping us shine brightly and really understanding how that resilience and having hope can help transform the lives of others and moving forward in leading a very productive and illuminating life. Thank you so much for coming on the Millionaire Woman Show. Thanks for having me. I loved it, Deborah. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. I would love for you to pop over to my website at www.debrakasowski.com. That's with an S-K-A-S-O-W-S-K-I.com. And you'll get your Reset Your Mindset 10-page PDF will tell you about when you're feeling off track to get yourself back on track and getting your mindset on moving forward and laying track forward. As the words of Muhammad Gandhi, be the change you wish to see in the world and go out and make today great. Thank you.